Hello and welcome to Just Keep Writing, a podcast for writers, by writers, to keep you writing. I'm Marshall. I'm Nick. I'm Brent. I'm LP. And I'm Will. And we're back again, full house, with a Piper. Welcome back, Piper. Piper J. Drake is back with us. Welcome back to talk about all the things again. We had such an awesome conversation last time. Uh, We are going to continue our conversation about non-Western storytelling structure. Right? Yes. Yes. And we're actually going to dive, I think, a little deeper. We touched on it a little bit in the uh, initial episode where we were talking about, like, what do we do when it comes to choosing a non-Western story structure or narrative uh, when it comes to an audience who might not be familiar with it? You know, what if the audience doesn't recognize the story structure and tries to fit it into what they expect the story structure to be? Like, once you put a book out there, you can't run after every reader and be like, no, I need to talk. I need you to walk you through it. So you understand like you, you don't have the option to do that. So what do we do as writers? Aside from like, try not to read the reviews because you're going to (laughs) cry. You know, one of the things that comes to mind is that can your um, publisher reach out to maybe reviewers who they know understand different types of story structures and have them review the book? Is that something that you could set up before the book is being launched? I think that um, reaching out to book influencers who might be approaching uh, reading from a different lens than a default Western lens uh, is definitely a good way to go about it because that will have, you know, hopefully result in reviews in advance of the book releasing, you know, and this is a very trad approach, right? We're talking about a very trad publishing approach here to try to, you know, counter other reviews that might come out uh, that may show that the readers or the reviewers didn't recognize the story structure. Um, other things you can do in release that I think apply to both trad and indie, because I think it's important to look at that is, uh, is, you know, getting spots on podcasts where you can talk about how excited you are that you tried this, right? <laughs> we, uh, you can also write and submit pieces like blog post pieces for certain, um, platforms where you can talk about like this cool storytelling tra- structure that you decided to go with and why, and why it was important to you. Um, You can also have it on your website under facts. Uh, You can have really easy book club questions and suggestions that kind of help lead that discussion. Uh, But that's only going to reach a fraction of your readership, right? You could include an author's note in the book as well. That's an option, but I'd be open to other thoughts. What do you all think? I feel like that's a tough question. It is. Um, I think it's like, it's like, I think I was just talking about this with um, LP and my friend, Amy uh, today when we had coffee and um, we were talking about like, you know, the role of, I was mentioning something that I just recently found out on Twitter through writer who I really love um, was having trouble with their books and agent, et cetera. And um, my biggest thing is that I really do feel whether you are going indie or being traditionally published, it seems like you still have to operate this. Like it's your own business, right? 
So I really think it's like, um, you know, really doing like social media, you know, really doing contacting those um, book influencers, really kind of putting yourself out there in a way that I think maybe a lot of authors don't want to, but I, I really, and I, and I don't have a book out yet. Right. I'm just launching. Um, but you're launching a webcomic. Yes. And <laughs> I've really, I know, here I go flinging my hair. Um, it's called Vessel. Um, I keep talking about it. It just makes me think. I had a meeting tonight with my artist, my friend, Sebastian. And I said, you know, Sebastian, even when Webtoon really like pushes us, it's still up to us. We have to be of the mindset that we're going to research reviewers of who we could send it to. We um, are planning to do episodes on the podcast to invite other Webtoon creators, indie creators, and people who write for Marvel to start building that community. And I think, you know, for a lot of people who are writing, they have a day job and then they're doing this. So a lot of people might not have that, what I like to call the New York hustle. And I think when you're doing something that is um, not of a typical narrative structure or, you know, you're not um, of the, you know, you're not like a straight white dude, you know, who could um, maybe get the backing easier, you know, I know Nick feels called out, (laughs) Um, but like, you know, like it's that much harder and you have to think of ways of how you can do that. And I think it's like, you have to pick your battles of what you want to concentrate on and then go from there. You know, um, I would really just try to u- utilize social media networking. A hard I don't truth, know, thoughts though, on that. I give, I give to you being a trad author who also is indie. So I'm a hybrid have been for quite a few years. Uh, and also being in romance where romance authors, friends know how to hustle. They're savvy, particularly indie. Uh, we know how to hustle and we treat, our author careers as a business. Uh, We're very romantic about it and we get very bonkers about the hanky panky, but when it comes to the business, we're all about the business. And um, I think that, so being a hybrid, uh, I definitely think a lot about the business, but I'm also an author who has a parallel career, right? I grew up and my parents said, get a real job, you know, Get your head out of the clouds. Don't be a super creative because you need to be able to be independent and financially independent. And uh, so I was looking at them and and like everything else, including my sexuality, I was like, why not both? Why not all the things? Why can I not have all the things? Right. So, you know, I developed a day job career and then I developed a writing career and I did it all. You know, that's the way it goes. And I think that um, when you're considering what you can do, a truth, a hard truth to realize is that social media only reaches in the single digit percentages of readers out there, especially after the pandemic and especially after the world events that happened post pandemic. More and more people are turning away from social media because they doom scroll or they've just been traumatized or they just can't take how painful the world has gotten. And social media is like walking through a gauntlet of people screaming and shouting and being aggressive, aggressive, either aggressively trying to sell or aggressively trying to express their opinions all up in your face. Um, 
And so more and more, it becomes true that social media is only a very, very tiny fraction of the overall readership. So that being the case, while social media is definitely something that we need to get out there and do because it is still a fraction, what else do we do? That is a hard question to answer. Yeah, I personally think this goes down to community and uplifting each other and, you know, having your friends that are writers, you know, you read your book and when they love your work, they produce your book. So like, I'll use like Brent as an example, you know, like I bought multiple copies, right? I know I'm going to hand them out. I know I'm going to give them to, I'm doing a crew of beauty editors um, coming up for my salon opening. So I'm going to hand them Brent's book. Cause I, a few of them I know are readers and this is just like a different way that you can get it in because I know them. I know that not only will they love it, they will also recommend it. You know, I think you can't underestimate, and this all goes back to word of mouth. Right. And I think, what I've learned from not publishing yet, you have to be your best advocate and you have to surround yourself with people who bring out the best in you. So you can be your best advocate. So on those, along those lines, I'm curious because, you know, I kind of feel the same way, honestly, about social media right now. Um, but post, I say post pandemic, um, post lockdown and all the, all the stuff like people are going to conventions and stuff more. Right. Is it, is that another way of, and I like this idea of being able to be your own advocate to stand there and say, this is my book. I can literally hand it to you or tell you about myself or have this conversation because I know for me, I'm, I'm typically good with people. I've been in sales. I'm a teacher. Like I can sell myself all day and talk to people, but if I'm not, is it worth buying it depends on where you are in your career, obviously, but I mean, is it worth going to conventions? Is it worth buying, you know, spending the money on that, on that table at that? I mean, I've been to Comic-Con at least seven or eight times. And I mean, those guys are working. San Diego Comic-Con is insane. And they're artists, Alley, those guys are sitting there. I mean, all day long trying to sell their stuff and talking to everybody that comes up. I mean, I just wonder if that's another way, you know, social media aside and sometimes those work, together too but i don't know is it worth doing that lp you go yeah it's worth it god damn it (laughs) shit look i don't one of the things that i learned in the past what three years going into four years is that like all right fuck it whatever uh flex incoming spoiler alert uh the first story that i ever finished got submitted to fire came out in fire and five months later it came out in the Barberton reads right my first reprint made more money than the first publishing of it right i did not know to hope for lavar burton reads and you can't you can't uh you do what you can do you know hopefully you have some people who will celebrate and help you help uplift you but like you do what you can do but one of the things that's been super helpful for me is hypervisibility. And it's not because I'm just like, oh, bitch, I'm just the biggest extrovert on the planet. I am. But like, <laughs> there's a version of it where like, you just can't know what opportunities are going to come your way because people 
see you, right? I have a I have a meeting tomorrow morning because somebody saw something, right? And so it's like, you know, I is anything going to come of it? I don't know. But like those opportunities to like rub elbows, communicate with, meet people whose books you love, those are priceless. But then these new opportunities show up out of them. And so I personally think cons are, are important and a, a big deal. I'm also biased because I'm like, let's all meet up at a Worldcon or Milcon or ICFA <laughs> or just take your pick. But like, yeah, like you you just don't know what's available to you until something just kind of shows up for you. So well, I, yeah. I guess I kind of asked the wrong question too. Not that it's worth it, but like, you know, Piper was talking about percentage on social media. Like, is it, I mean, the con percentage, I guess is what I was kind of trying to hint at a little bit um, as far, but I mean, I mean, you're right. I'll be, I was just thinking, you know, is it potentially a bigger reach or about the same as when it comes to social media too? You can hand sell your books. Yeah. You can get onto you a can. panel and talk about the things that, get on a panel, do the panel thing, like speculative teachers or, you know, parents of, of queer children or whatever panel you're on, you know, have that pitch on deck, that 30 second pitch ready for when it's time for you to, to wow people. They're like, and I'll be in the dealer's room at this time, you know, establish yourself as an expert or an authority on what it is that you're an expert or authority on. Um, be congenial in front of other people. <laughs> When it's time to, when they ask you, well, where can we find some of your work? You tell them what you've got coming and make sure that it's in a nice sound bite that makes it easy and tell them when they're going to be able to find you in the dealer's room, where your readings are, and let them know they can come up and say hi to you at any time, unless you're an introvert, in which case, ask me how I feel. Piper, go ahead. All right. So this is multi-layered because so many things I came up with to say as we were talking about it. Uh, but if we address cons specifically, when I was a baby author, first kind of getting out there in the Romance Landia field, uh, another author told me I had to go to at least six to eight cons a year. That's expensive. That is really, really, really expensive. Uh, so friends, you have to do this thing. We've talked about, is it worth the investment? Do a calculation for return on investment. Do the math as to what does it cost for you to get there? What does it cost for you to register for this con? What will food cost? What will transportation cost during the con? What will it cost for you to have materials with you to promote your book, if not your book itself? Okay. And then you think about, what all this cost? And then after the con, you do a debrief about the things that happened. And it may not be a monetary thing, but things that happened at that con and ask yourself, was this worth it? Will I go to this con again? And you have to do that return on investment. Now, those returns could be intangible. It could be you made an amazing connection with this author who is now calling you their protege and introducing you to a whole bunch of other industry professionals. Is that worth it to you? Quite possibly. You could be something where you walked into a room and a whole bunch of authors loved you and said, hey, and they invite you into a collaboration that's going to get you exposure with all of their audiences. Is that worth it? Quite yes. Maybe? Don't know. Anthologies are hard to pin down, right? So 
there's that. But there's also the fact that you have to be willing to put yourself out there. I have been with quite a few people who come to a con because I said it was a great return on investment for me. I will never tell you, hey, you have to go to an event. I will tell you why it was a great return on investment for me. And they went and then they just sent me messages every night about how sad they were because they didn't talk to anybody. They didn't meet anybody. And they felt really, really like I had forgotten them because I didn't come get mm. them. And I didn't stay in their room with them. And I didn't have dinner with them in their room because every single night, you know, I would always tell anybody who I'm at a con with, hey, this is my schedule. This is my time. Anybody who's been with me and Matthew, half the time you don't see Dra- the Drakes on the same side of the ship. <laughs> right. And, and I sleep with him. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> But on the uh, on on various events, like sometimes you, we didn't sleep during that con together, right? Because the two of us are out doing our thing. I will let you know what my itinerary is. I will tell you when I would love to get together with you and connect with you. And I will also tell you when I got stuff going on, you know, and we each have to take care of ourselves. One of the things that I do at a con always is before I call it a night, I take a lap around the lobby or the bar or wherever bar con is, I take a lap knowing that I could get sidetracked seeing somebody and end up in a conversation until 2 a.m., 3 a.m. or dawn. I know what's going to happen, but I still take that lap. Why? Because I'm putting myself out there for the opportunity for a conversation to happen, right? So realize that you have to have these habits when you put yourself out there. The other thing I do, um, if I'm hand selling, I don't always hand sell at cons. It's not always a good return on investment, so I don't always do it. I do not specifically go, oh, hand selling works for me. I'm a great hand seller, so I'm going to hand sell at every single con. No, it is not always worth it to me. I did hand sell a Dragonsteel Mini Con this past November, and it was worth it to me. But I will tell you something. I was hustling. Every book I had when someone came up and said, hey, tell me about your books. I didn't just say, hi, I'm Piper J. Drake and I write romance. I'm like, oh, are you interested in zombies? This is werewolves hunting zombies at Ground Zero of the Apocalypse. Lots of body count some hanky panky going on, right? Oh, do you like shapeshifters? I've got shapeshifters in space. She's really, really good at murder. She's kind of bad at feelings. This other book, you know, and every single one of them, people would laugh. That's not an elevator pitch. It didn't tell you anything about the story. Basically, all I did was tell you a really, really, really entertaining couple of tropes and themes that are in my book. But did that sell? Yes, it did. Did stopping and talking to each person and giving them my 30 second elevator pitch work? No. It was too long. So I was hustling because I had lines. And sometimes the lines weren't for me, right? Like I was sitting next to Dan Wells <laughs> at Dragonsteel Minicon where he's recording intentionally blank. And he's just been hired as the VP of content for Dragonsteel. So there was a line going past his booth. And as people were walking by, I'm like, feel free to peruse. And they're like, well, tell me about this while I'm waiting in line. Bang. This, this, this. And like literally it was just trope, 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 trope. Why? Because that's all I had time for before their line moved. Some people are like, oh, now I will give props to Brandon Sanderson in that he has really cultivated a fandom that doesn't walk up to me and say, not a single person in that entire 3,000 person con said, oh, I don't read romance. Not a single person said it to me. It was so refreshing. (laughs) I've never had that experience at a science fiction con or fantasy con. It was delightful. Uh, But what did happen was people look at me and say, I'm, I'm really not experienced with this genre or this really isn't my thing. 
and I would say, hey, do you have a friend or a family member who does? Well, yeah, feel free to take pictures of my books. Feel free to take pictures of the back and let them know that they're here. And you can always come back and buy it for them. Christmas is coming. You know, all of the holiday seasons are coming. And they're like, ooh. And I cannot tell you how many people came back and was like, my wife told me I'm not allowed to leave until I get this book. <laughs> Literally, the guy who was delivering drinks throughout the thing came back and he was like, hey, on my next run, I got to come by and pick up these books. Can you have them on the side for me? You know, so you learn to hustle when you're hand selling. And was it worth it to me at Dragonsteel? Absolutely, it was. Would it be worth it to me at another con? Potentially not. Actually, I can tell you most of the time not. A comic con would not be worth it to me to hand sell. Because too much of my time could be better used on panel or, and I was on panel for Dragonsteel Minicon. I was on two different panels. Um, but at a comic con where I could be meeting with other authors or meeting with other industry pros where those networking connections could result in an overall contract, my time is better spent elsewhere rather than hand selling. Will you raise them? Also, yeah. Also too, it's kind of like, what type of person are you? I know I wouldn't, feel good about trying everything that I felt like I could do. Um, like if my same, my book or something wasn't working out, I would always look inward and say, okay, what did I do? And what didn't I do? And if I checked off everything that I did, then it's like, all right, what worked? What didn't, what had the most benefit? Did any of it set up my future? Whether, you know, you didn't sell anything or nothing moved, but you met the right people. You met the right connections. Cause when I think of like convent, like workshops that we've been to go in a future skate, the biggest thing wasn't about the feedback that um, one of the editors gave me. The biggest thing was that I met Nick and I met Elena and I met Amit and Samim it's the people that have been in my life since those points that made the money worth going, not the critiques from the, from the, you know, the people that we so were sorting after. If anything, it taught me like we had Allie Fisher from tour. He's a wonderful editor, but, um, and she did a great round table with us, but I still have more longevity with all of my people. I was in, my workshop with than that one meeting with Allie Fisher. You know what I mean? Like Sarah's agenting now. Elena's uh, writing Chicago PD. So it's just like, to me, that was worth it. So I think you have to think of things holistically too. Go ahead, LP. I think he's just singing into a mute mic. I think he's just singing. I don't know what he's doing. Oh, that sucks. I was singing We Are the World. Okay. Oh, that song brings back memories. Yep. I don't even know how many graduations had that as their theme song. <laughs> so Piper, this is my question for you though. When you're talking, like uh, we covered like, you know, when, um, what do you do when your audience doesn't recognize the story structure? I mean, let me ask you this. What was it like with your editor? And if your editor isn't someone who comes from that story structure, was it, what has your experience been with people who, you know, basically have only come from a, a Western viewpoint of storytelling. Like, did you have resistance when you were um, pitching um, the new book? Were they open to it? Were they well-read enough that they understood what you wanted to do? So the fun thing about this is that if we stay specifically with Wings, Once Cursed and Bound and my contract with Sourcebooks, uh, my editor at Sourcebooks was very open to the concept 
in which I pitched that I wanted the real world with paranormal elements, that I wanted to really focus on supernatural um, beings as characters, and that I kind of wanted to explore a little bit of diaspora while the diaspora experience while I was getting into them. And she was like, well, how, how much are we departing from reality? Like how paranormal are we getting? And fortunately for me, my editor is also a gamer. And so she's like, are we talking like Shadowrun? Are we talking a world of darkness? And I was like, we're leaning more towards world of darkness. And she's like, yes, lean more towards world of darkness. Don't go as far as Shadowrun. And I'm like, okay, I, I got that. We got this. And she's like, all right, write it. So we did not, I did not warn her in advance about what I was going to do with the narrative story structure. She trusted me on that. And when we got the manuscript uh, completed and I turned it in, uh, it went to an early reader first. And that early reader recognized what I was trying to do and made some really great um, suggestions to make it more accessible to readers who might be approaching it from a Western lens. What about like, you know, LP and Brent, like, do you ever think about the way that you're like, ha- or have you structured some of your short stories or your novels that aren't done through like a certain lens? And I guess my question is when you're doing something, maybe that um, some people aren't used to reading, has it been your experience that you've gotten pushback? Has it helped you? Does that make sense? Am I making sense? Or is it so late here that I don't know what No, it makes sense. Do you mind if I pop in first, LP, Brent? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I think when it comes to that, it's also important to recognize that I have been both a trad and an indie author for quite a few years. And so I have a pretty decent number of books in my backlist. Um, in my trad experience, I have been with other publishers other than the publisher that I am with for the launch of Mythwoven. So in the past, with mm-hmm. past series, uh, for example, the True Hero series had six books in the series. And across those six books, I had four editors, maybe five. Now, this is the life, friends, of an author <laughs> who has a long-running series sometimes because, you know, for various reasons, my first editor acquired my book, was passionate about the True Hero series and the concept of the True Heroes. It went through a a bidding kind of situation where they outbid a couple of other publishers. So they were passionate about this book. You want an editor who is passionate about your series to advocate for you. Then she got a better job offer after the first book and she left the publishing house. So they gave me to a new editor and this editor was a junior editor or like more junior. I won't say they were a junior editor. That wasn't their title, but they were more junior in the editing structure at that publishing house, but they were also really excited about my series. And so we continued. The third editor was a more senior editor because obviously my, my series was showing that it was successful enough in the romantic suspense space um, and was gaining enough attention uh, that, you know, a senior editor took me on and we worked on a book or two and that was great. But then that senior editor took on additional duties uh, pushing into other genres and gave me to another editor. And that last editor, you know, I got some interesting pushback on my story structure. I got some interesting pushback on narrative, uh, you know, and, and a thing that she would say is, well, you know, this is just editorial commentary and you don't have to listen to me. You can tell the story you want to tell, but just know that I'm coming from the perspective that I'm trying to get you to a place where your book is going to sit on a store shelf 
in the Midwest and a Midwest reader is going to walk down the aisle with their shopping cart and tip your book automatically into the shopping cart. That's what I'm trying to do. And you can listen to me or you cannot. And you know what? I can understand where she was coming from. But we were not in alignment. We were not a good fit. So I finished the series. And I can tell you right now, we had some we had some adventures with those series. And, you know, there were a couple of Zoom calls that we got onto where I was like, excuse me, let's let's at least agree to be in the same room when it comes to this book. Um, you know, and, and it's not that the editor was not a good editor and it's not that I was not a good author. It was that we were not a good fit, you know, for reasons. So yeah, I've definitely gotten pushback on my narrative choices. I've gotten pushback on, you know, a lot of elements that reflected the fact that I come from a marginalized identity or intersection of identities. And I think that that's, um, that's been an experience, but do realize you're going to, through your authoring career, go through a lot of different editors. You are. As long as you decide that authoring, being an author and writing books and publishing them is something that you want to do, whether you go trad or you go indie, you're going to come across a bunch of different editors. And, um, you know, you're going to want to take their advice or their feedback and you need to stay true to your voice as you do so. Um, and you do have that power even in trad, right? But at the same time, you need to learn how to negotiate and figure out which hills you're going to die on because the editors, the editor that I'm talking about here had the best of intentions. She wanted my book to sell and she wanted my book to sell to a mainstream audience. She wasn't wrong, but also I had to choose the hills I was going to die on. Child, I'm salty. So... (laughs) (laughs) So, like, I think I talked about this on the last episode that, like, I'm kind of adamant about getting my short pieces republished as reprints. But then it clicked to me when the PLB score came out that, like, oh, magazines that I submitted this these stories to will take my stories as reprints, but they won't, like, publish me the first time. Um, and so I had to really stop and, like, think about, like... What does that mean? Do I even want to be reprinted in these magazines? Um, and by the time the the stories get published a second time, no one bats an eye. Like th- there's not a lot of editing to be done, you know. Um, but there is something really, in my opinion, powerful about selling a story to an editor who an ed- editor or a market that's um, enthusiastic about the work. They're like, oh my God, I love this story. And like that for me trumps everything because again, you know, open 27 hours got rejected by Escape Pod, but then it got reprinted by Escape Pod. Shout out to Brent. Um, (laughs) So it's like, I don't know. Was it good enough the first time around? Got edited in Speculative City and then it came out in Escape Pod. I'm like, great, love this for us. Um, But I think part of that is you know, we were talking in the last episode as well about how a lot of reviewers don't read very widely. Editors and agents are overworked and they don't read very widely. And slush readers don't read very widely. They do read very widely, but like they're taught to read to disqualify versus reading to appreciate innovation or genius. And I don't say that because I'm a genius. I say that because like 
I know people who are submitting stories that are like fucking fire, but what ends up coming out in said magazines tends to be things that are very staid and like not innovating so much as not pushing the boundaries of what the magazine or what its readership could enjoy. All this to say, like, I don't have any interest at this point in writing things that like, I don't write anything with white people in mind. I don't write anything with straight people in mind. Um, and I don't know what that's going to look like as a career choice. Um, cause it's not a career choice. It's a hard choice for me personally. Um, and I may feel differently later. Um, I might want to write a series that has a, a more mass appeal, a more mainstream appeal later on. But at this point, I'm just like, write the things that make me excited because that's, that's how I just keep writing. I don't know. It's, it's hard though, because like, you know, you have to make decisions that allow you to, you know, quit the steakhouse and you have to make uh, decisions that allow you to, you know, um, pay your rent and keep the lights on. So I don't have to dance this dance yet, but like, it is something that's kind of like on my horizon, something that I'm always thinking about saltily. (laughs) Look, salted caramel is one of my favorite candies. It's okay. So good. Salt is one of my favorite seasonings. Oh, yes. <laughs> Brent, do you do you have anything you wanted to say? Mm, I guess for me, um, in terms of like how I want my own path to go, I like or how I'm thinking about my path strategy, I guess, is like you got to make your single ladies before you can make your lemonade. And, and the reason I say that is that, you know, uh, you 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 can go straight to lemonade if you want to, but maybe understand that you know if lemonade had dropped in the very beginning, it may not have been lemonade. It may have been more of a it may have been more of an indie album that you know everyone loved, but it never got the wide acclaim that it may have found. You know, so for me, I I think early on I do can try to consider these these mainstream audiences if only because I saw someone ask this question like would you rather have a story like Shirley Jackson's The Lottery where it's remembered forever or you have a long string of mediocre stories but you get paid for them and for my money I want the mediocre stories that pay me because I'm not going to be around to be Shirley Jackson I don't give a damn how great my stuff is remembered 200, 300 years from now, I want to eat today. So now that's not to say I want to put out, you know, mediocre work, but I think there's a tightrope to walk right between being yourself and being the kind of artist you want. But if your goal is to one day, I don't know, be able to quit your day job or be able to put down a mortgage for a house. Cause I think of Octavia Butler a lot too with this, right? She died with nothing damn near. And she was putting out, genius after genius after genius works. So it's just like, I think of that, I think of that tightrope, especially being black. You got, I don't think there's any black artist that can walk away from having to do that, uh, do that tightrope and make those calculations in their head of like, how much do I write for these white people, essentially, or how much do I write for us? And trying to figure out like, can I move from like writing for white people and tiptoe my way 
into writing for us. And I think I always think Beyonce, she's just a great example of that. She did her, she did her baby boys. She did her lemon single ladies, blah, blah, blah. And she built her way up to lemonade. She built her way up to, you know, uh, the most recent album. These are things that I think she worked her way through and she was very strategic about it. She's a very, very strategic artist. So uh, she's someone I always think of. But anyway, yeah, that's my two cents on that. So I also think like when you mentioned Shirley Jackson, it's also like, I always think about like Zora Neale Hurston, who was like, to me, in my, in, like, in my opinion, she was the greatest writer ever. I, f- I just love her work and I love the way that she uses language and dialect. And she had her moment, right? In the during the Harlem Renaissance for a minute because someone who was um who was a patron who was white, um, you know, the Harlem Renaissance was really big. They gave her a lot of money, and then that person took it away from her because, you know, uh the patron said she was getting too black, which was crazy. And she died in poor. And then now we see for how great she is. And I think there's I want to also make an analogy entertainment-wise. Cheryl Lee Ralph, okay? She uh, came out in Dreamgirls and blew it out. And then, you know, she then is 66 and she just won an Emmy for her role. And we're seeing, you know, sometimes you can be so great in the beginning and it's like through the grace of the universe, please keep living because hopefully within your time before you pass away, you are able to see that greatness be fulfilled and see how much of a impact impact that you have on people. Because when I read about Octavia Butler, it's like, you know, she really struggled with confidence and, um, and, you know, with her writing and she was, is, I mean, hands down one of the best writers ever science fiction or not you know um and i hope as we move forward we get to write our truest stories and make money i'm gonna pop in for a minute i want to let you finish your thought first though yeah i just think i just think you know like we need to really like what lp was saying like i'm not writing for white people i'm i'm writing for you know queer people I hope it's through our specificity that it can have um, people are gravitated towards us because they finally see us as our full human selves. And then within that, they see their own humanity. And that's what I think is what's beautiful about writing. And I said this on the podcast before, Brent. Um, when my black friends heard you talk about your book, and now that they hear LP talk about his stuff, um, three of them have said to me, I didn't even really know there was like queer black men writing science fiction. I didn't know there was queer black men um, writing about like what it's like to be queer black men in a fantasy. And these are like hardcore gamers, comic book people. And it was almost like I, one of my friends like was almost ready to be burst into tears about it. Cause it's like, they finally felt like they had a home. They finally felt like they had someone and being seen. And I just hope we can, grab onto that moment and um, run with it. 
And now I'm going to challenge. And everyone makes money. Go ahead. And now Go. I'm going to challenge all of you because so far in our discussion, we've all kind of uh, presented the choice in our author careers of having to write for the mainstream or writing our true stories. And I say, as we know, and I have cracked a couple of times now, why not both? Why not both? Because I will tell you right now, the one book that you write isn't the only book that you're going to write. There isn't a single book that I haven't published that I wasn't in love with when I wrote it. There isn't a single book that I wrote that isn't still my true story. Did I absolutely love every single dog in the True Hero series? Yes. Did I fall in love with every single hero? Yes. Did I kind of really, really, really want every single one of my heroines? Yes, not even kind of, I did, right? When it comes down to it, did I make choices to appeal to a, a broader mainstream? I did. But even though I made that choice, I created characters that I found attractive and appealing and engaging, and I had investment in them. And I created dogs that were loyal and had my heart, and I would never, ever let them die. I would let the humans die before I would let the dogs die, right? So when it comes down to it, even though you can make strategic choices, you can also love your work. And one of the things that I find really fun, um, and I have mentioned her across a bajillion podcasts because I have so much respect for an author friend of mine. Her name is Katie Robert. She writes romance. There came a time, we were both at the same publishing house at the same time in the same imprint. And um, there came a time when her series ended and all of the, the possible pitches that she had, the editors loved her work, but they didn't want those story pitches. They wanted her to something else because every single one of them was just a little too weird, a little too wonky, a little too bonkers. So you know what she did? She went indie. And she chased her joy in writing. And she started out, she threw, she threw several series at the wall, right? Because this, she was a full-time author. This was her income. This was her livelihood. She was taking risks. But in order to keep writing, because she was getting burned out, she needed to write her joy. And what she did was she punched a whole bunch of series out there. And she, it was spaghetti at a wall. Which one stuck? And she was prepared that whichever series took off, she was going to go all in on it, be smart about the business on it, so that she could maximize the wave that was generated from readers coming to read that series. And when Wicked Villains turned out to be the one that everybody started talking about, and there was a Streisand effect in there too, because a lot of people were like, oh my gosh, Disney's going to sue her. What? Let me go read this book. How is Disney going to sue her? Right? And nobody wanted it to be that big. We didn't actually want Disney to sue her, but everybody wanted to know what's going on with this book. And it was a Streisand effect. She got more and more attention from it. It wasn't comfortable attention, but then people read it and they loved it. They loved the Wicked Village series. Tell me, I'm telling you right now, Desperate Messers. Like, did you ever watch the live action of Aladdin and just think Jafar was like, oh my gosh, a baseball? And then tell me that you didn't watch the cartoon version of Aladdin and think that Jasmine in the red outfit is the way to go because, yes. Uh, <laughs> so in any case, like that series had all the right elements. She had everything set up for it to be this 
wonderful candy that everybody wanted to eat up. And when it turned out to be the series that took off, there were other series that she started. She was ready for the promo. She was ready with the uh, follow-up books to the series. She was ready to sell through and she did it and she hit it smart. And then she built up multiple streams of income so that she started having income, not only from those things, but she took a look at her backlist, re-released some of those things, put them out in Kindle Unlimited, as well as releasing them wide. And slowly over the course of like two years, I think her indie income rose up and took over and outpaced her trad income. And then she broadened her income streams even more with Patreon, with Kickstarter. And at this point, she is a seven-digit earning author. And that is not even talking about her trad contracts, in which her most recent trad contract with the same editor that I have, the same editing team, um, hit New York Times and USA Today. And I need not remind the people who listen to this podcast how hard it is for speculative fiction to hit the New York Times for all the reasons in the world that are bad. Right. So when it comes down to it, my point is we do not have to choose between writing for mainstream or writing our true story. We can do both. We can put our joy into our books while we're making strategic decisions to appeal to our target audiences. And what we're deciding to do is who is our target? What is the story we're writing? How do we market it to the target? that we're trying to and realizing that we may have different marketing strategies for different audiences and we may be deciding to create a Venn diagram with overlap and we execute that like a business. So I hear what you're saying, but I also want to just say on the flip side, it's like when you're someone who is marginalized, I'm just going to use a for me, if I had one more person tell me ever again that I have to italicize Spanish so the mainstream audience can understand it, go fuck yourself. If I have to hear someone else tell me I need to mainstream my shit and have straight people in it, go fuck yourself. Because if by now you don't see the humanity and the characters of what they're struggling through, I'm not fucking writing mainstream. I'm writing for fucking queer people. You either get on this fucking boat or you get off. <laughs> You know, and I cannot, I cannot be, I cannot go in there thinking, well, I hear what you're saying, Piper, but like, if I had to think of what I think of automatically as mainstream, it's like straight people falling in love and like getting challenged, you know, because that is constantly what the narrative has been shoved down my throat since I was a child. So I couldn't, I couldn't strategically think like that. I can only strategically like pop my middle finger up and be like, I'm going to write whatever the fuck I want and get on this car ride or not. And that's so. fair. That is fair. Yeah. Although I absolutely agree when it comes to the language in italics, that was one of the hills that I was willing to die with, with my editors repeatedly over and over and over again. Yeah. Like, uh, so yeah, I'm not this. here for languages in italicizes, especially when, you know, yeah. somebody was like, Oh, well, this is a Hawaiian word. And I'm like, last I heard Hawaiian. Hawaii is not a foreign territory. Get em. I mean, do we we don't italicize Klingon? All right, God, I'm sorry. Get him. Um, yeah, I guess this is in response to what Piper just said. In that, like, it's not that I'm like, oh, you know, in me writing for BIPOC folk, for queer folk, to them, I should say, not for to them, I'm going to write things that I think are really great and fun and like all those things. And 
does that mean that I'm going to have a hard time finding a publishing home for them? That might be. And I think that that's a hill that I'm willing to die on. Or at least that's how I feel right now. Um, there may come a time where I'm like, in my head, I'm like, you know, you want to see these options here? Take this book I wrote. Take this book I wrote. Take this book I wrote. You're not interested in any of those? That's fine. Maybe we can come up with a concept together. Because I'm about to take these to a smaller publisher. And, like, we're going to go Neon Hemlock or Aqueduct or Saga or Solaris or whatever the fuck. But just, like, I don't know. It, it, I know, I feel, in my opinion, I think I believe that uh, some of the things that I want to write are going to make people more uncomfortable than they'll be willing to fight for. So knowing that, I'm like, okay, cool. Look, I would love to be traditionally published. I very much love that. I think that would be really great. I think it'd be really fun. Yeah, I, I just think uh, some things are going to be a fight, and I, I'm already having short fiction fight problems. So it's just like, okay, well, know it's going to be this, potentially know the things I have interest in writing. Maybe I'll do like some some uh, IP at some point, but this point, I think this is just what it's going to look like for a while. One of the things I love about Katie is that at this point, every book she puts out, there are no straight people in her books. Every character is queer. Every character. She doesn't even need to say it anymore. Just realize it. And when people comment and are like, oh, I read in and I read this book. And then they comment on her TikTok. She just looks at them and she's like, oh, baby, are you new here? <laughs> because nobody's surprised anymore right like she's made that space for herself and a part of that is also reader trust Mm -hmm. right yes new readers are coming in all the time we want to get new readers to come in all the time but she's also built a large enough platform of reader trust that she can just be i mean what i love about it is her most recent yes they made the announcement so i can talk about it her most recent trad deal is fantasy that fucks and excuse me, but it fucks and every character is in, the, in there is queer. There may be some heteronormative relationships, but every character in there is queer. Um, so I kind of love that. I kind of love that she's made that space for herself and she's gone that far and proven that her books sell that well in an indie space that Trad is like eager to take anything she's willing to give them and take it Trad. And so she's kind of she's made it to a point where she is trailblazing and to Brent's point about Beyonce, right? Like Beyonce made a space for herself to a point where she could trailblaze. Some of us choose to trailblaze right from the very beginning. And that's a choice too. And that's okay. I think all of those choices are valid choices. And it really is. Like you said, they're decisions from the heart. Their decisions of like, at that time, what's the right choice for you? And no one can make that choice for you. And I don't think any of them are wrong. Nice. But we got super deep and we're still like talking about, you know, non-Western story structures and linear versus non-linear storytelling. So maybe let's take this up a little lighter. Can I tell you all a story? Story time. Yay. Okay. So I was on panel at Dragonsteel Minicon. Okay, mention. This particular one was an editorial one. And we had an actual editor on the panel, as well as myself, as well as another author who also does editing. And we had had a bunch of samples uh, that were provided to us, and we were all giving kind of constructive comment and feedback on it. And, you know, one sample in particular had stood out to us, and 
I, I was listening to the others give their comments first and they were like, I, I found, I found the narrative difficult and slow because we were repeating the same scene from six different points of view. And I just didn't really understand what that was about. Like that was a really slow start. It really was kind of slow pacing. It was beautiful in the detail, but it was really inconsistent and like was really confusing. And I said, you know, I feel like, I don't know if this is the author's intent, but it feels like cyclic storytelling. If it was in fact an attempt at cyclic storytelling, then I think that, this didn't quite land the way that you're hoping, but also you're going to run into a thing where the people who are giving you feedback that didn't recognize your story structure, aren't going to be able to constructively help you refine the narrative because they don't know how they don't recognize the story structure. And the person just shot his hand up straight in the air. was like, that's exactly the story structure. And everybody in the audience was like, what? How? And I was like, so this is a not as well-known narrative structure. It's non-Western. Um, it's really hard <laughs> to read it through the lens of Western storytelling structure because this is not a three-act structure. And a lot of our commentary was if this was an act one for a three-part or a five-part story structure. you know, And maybe we would have recognized it more if we continued on and read a larger sample. Uh, so that story for me was like, I'm sitting here up on a panel, didn't even expect to have a sample hit me. And I'll, I'll confess right now, I didn't realize it was cyclic and circular until I was up there on panel thinking about my comments and the POV, the number of POVs and what happened in each of those POVs. Like I didn't realize it when I read it the first time because I just wasn't expecting to encounter a circular or cyclic story structure. We had no warning in advance. All I knew was the genre and I had like, you know, a, a single chapter sample to be reading to try to figure this out. So I think that it was a really cool thing that I figured it out on this panel and had the opportunity to share with this panel like, hey, here's a great example of sometimes things can happen, especially if you're using a non-Western story structure. Everybody in that panel is suddenly going, story structure? Like other than three acts? Other than save the cat? Other than Hero's Journey? They struggle so hard. Like, it was great. I had the opportunity to talk about it on a panel, and all those people got to at least know this exists. It's a thing. It really is a thing. Or they just didn't believe me. <laughs> Possible. But that is also the really great thing if you are an author with different experiences get on panel, talk about it. I was really appreciative too that Dragonsteel Minicon didn't put me on a diversity panel. They put me on writing craft panels. They put me on panels pertinent to my genre and they were fun and they were great. And just by virtue of the fact that I was on that panel, we covered diversity because we had diverse representation. And that was awesome. I have a tendency to say no. To cons that are like, we have a diversity panel we'd like you to be on. Mm. I was like, is that the only reason why you're inviting me to this con? Hint, don't do it. 
and this has been Just Keep Writing, a podcast for writers, by writers, to keep you writing. You can find us at justkeepwriting.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Feel free to reach out to any of us on our social medias, and please jump in our Just Keep Writing Discord channel. Links to all of that is in the show notes. Lastly, please support our show by going to patreon.com slash justkeepwriting. We offer daily writing prompts, early access to podcast episodes, and much more. Thanks for listening, and just keep writing.